Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. <laughs> Almost forgot. So I, I was thinking I would love to ask Michael this question. You know, we say 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. In reality, it's probably 1 through the middle of chapter 5 is kind of where the nice, clean breaking point is. Uh, but it's a whole lot easier to say chapters 1 through 4. Uh, and remember, when the letter was written, there are no chapters, there are no verses. It was just a letter like you or I would write. Now, granted, it's a rather lengthy letter, uh, but it is a letter uh, nonetheless. So we are now in the second section. So Paul has explained to us how God's righteousness comes to bear on specifically the issue of faith. And the righteousness that God is going to offer us uh, as we exercise faith in Him. And in chapters 5 through 8, he's going to begin to expound that. But he's going to deal more specifically with the issue of salvation uh, and the double cure. In other words, yes, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. But how does that mechanism of saving you from the penalty of sin actually help you to live a life that that demonstrates the righteousness of God, that shows forth this uprightness of character, this this godliness. And so much of this section of the book is given over to that particular idea. <clears throat> Remember, all of this is built on, uh, and I'm just kind of leaving this on the notes now, the, the diagram of the way that God would view humanity. There is either the wicked or the righteous and the wickedness or the righteousness of those individuals has nothing to do with their behavior, right? Now, we might look at them and say, ooh, that's a bad person, or ooh, that's a good person. But in reality, what God is looking at is their, their position in Him based on faith or no faith, based on belief and unbelief. Uh, and so God is viewing individuals according to that. Um, so... As we begin this section, there is a, a large discussion around death, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 5 and begin at verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Uh, this is kind of the, the, the hinge or the transition that Paul makes into this uh, expounding of how God's righteousness is actually going to affect our everyday lives. He begins with the, with the subject of death. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about death. Uh, that seems like not a very good thing to talk about on a beautiful Sunday morning, right? Uh, and especially when we're talking about the hope of the gospel, when we're talking about forgiveness, why in the world would we spend time talking about death? So in Genesis chapter 3, as God is, is viewing and working with Adam and Eve, he tells them, look, you can eat anything in here, but that tree over there you can't eat from. That one is off limits. And uh, many have pointed out that that was a test of the will of of Adam and Eve. 
Were they going to submit their will to their Creator, or were they going to go their own way? And so, uh, you know the story. Uh, the serpent comes along, who is Satan in, in disguise, or Lucifer, the fallen angel, and he begins to uh, tempt Eve by using the very words of God, but twisting them slightly. And I had this epiphany this week. Have you ever noticed how Satan, uh, when he's at his best, will use 98% truth and 2% lie? And that is where we get ourselves in trouble. He looks at Eve and, and says, you know, get, did God really say you couldn't eat from every tree in this beautiful garden? And Eve responds and says, well, God said we could eat from all the trees except for that one. We, we can't eat from that one. And then he says, well, did God say that you would really die? And the, here, So here's my epiphany. Satan is wise. Satan is not all-knowing on the level of God, but he is very intelligent. He's way more intelligent than you and I. And he knew that if Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they weren't going to drop dead in that very instant. He, if he could get them to take the bite, it would undermine the truthfulness of God in their mind, in Adam and Eve's mind. Now, it really didn't undermine what God said, but it was going to undermine it in their mind. And so, obviously, Eve takes of the fruit. And what happens? Does she die? Does she drop dead right there in the garden? She doesn't, does she? And then Adam takes of it, and a sign of willful disobedience, and he doesn't drop dead. And yet here, Paul says that because of the sin of the one man, the one man here is Adam, death entered the world. So, my question to you is, how have we died as a result of the presence of sinfulness in our lives? In what ways have you and I died because... Sin is now present in our lives. And I want you to, uh, uh, to spend some time mulling this over. Uh, and I, actually, I think uh, what we might do, I'm going to pause this together now. And uh, hopefully you've had the opportunity to uh, uh, kind of hash some of this around. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, and just feel free to kind of uh, share some of these Loudly, we'll, we'll try and pick them up on here. But as a result of death in our lives, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, how has that death changed our lives? How has that uh, the presence of sinfulness uh, brought death into our lives, and, and what has it manifested itself as? No peace. No peace. Okay. What else? I know you guys have big lists because I heard rebellion you talking. It makes us very rebellious. Okay, rebellious. <clears throat> Anger and fear. Anger and fear. Good. What else? We don't reach our full potential. We don't reach the fullness of life that God has for us. Okay. Um, Doubt? Good. Yeah, doubt, yeah. That's a good one. How else? 
suffer. We suffer. Uh, I assume you mean physically, whether it be sick. Okay. Yeah. Physical, emotional, like grief. Emotional. Physical. Okay. Spiritual. Yeah. I misspelled that. Go with it. Anything else? Because in reality, that's what death is. It, it shows itself over and over again. In I was thinking about this uh, early this morning as I was up in relationships. So it doesn't matter if you're a junior higher in school, right? In your first real quote-unquote love. And when, when that goes awry, there is a sense of loss that comes. This person that you have come to know. And, and you can follow through with relationships, whether it's more serious relationships, even a marriage. When a marriage breaks up, um, that sense of loss is in reality, is in essence, death. Uh, work. Think of it in terms of there's a job that you really, really want. And you don't get. This, the emotional strain that we go through is the exact same as when somebody dies. That, that sense of loss. Or we have a job that we really, really like and we lose it. Uh, maybe the company, something happens. The company goes bankrupt, you lose your job. Or you get fired from it for your own mistake. That, that sense of loss is in reality the same thing as uh, the sense of death. Fear, you guys caught fear. How about dreams? You know, as 20-year-olds, we all had dreams. I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, my eyesight wasn't good enough, and I wasn't really willing to go through all that stuff that astronauts have to go to. I told you a few minutes ago, I'm lazy. So, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. But, but when we realize the death of our dreams, there is this sense of loss that comes into our life, uh, our hopes. There are certain things that we hope for our children, and when those go awry, how does that affect you? It's horrible, isn't it? Uh, a, a lady that I used to work with uh, when I was at Girard on Friday, her daughter, who's the same age as my daughter, 22 years old, was killed in a car accident. Like that. Gone. 
She had three, two other people in the car with her and uh, somehow went off the road, hit a tree. She was killed instantly. That sense of finality and loss in an instant affects our lives. And in all, every single one of these, these situations, relationships, work, fears, dreams, hopes, lives, it's death that is affecting how we respond in that. Paul is now going to pivot and say, I want you to die. We say, Paul, you're not very good at this selling stuff, are you? I mean, good grief. Paul makes an argument, and uh, my other epiphany this week was, when Paul makes an argument, we have to remember it's really not Paul's argument. It's God's argument, isn't it? And it is the argument that Jesus himself has shared. Uh, Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? These are the words of Jesus when he was talking to his disciples about what lay ahead. So, with that in mind, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to see how Paul pivots and how he begins to talk about this concept of death. Uh, And I just want to back up to uh, chapter 5, verse 20 and read there in order to get the context. So Paul has been talking about death. He has been talking about how death has come into our existence because of the sin of Adam and uh, talking about the difference between the, the death of Jesus and the sin of Adam. And he says in verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin <coughs> reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall we go on living the lives that Romans chapter 1 talks about? where we reject God as the Creator, we reject God as the self-existent one, we reject God's uh, insight into our lives, we reject the commands of God. Should we continue to live our lives like that? I mean, after all, if God has said, hey, you're all okay, grace has come into your life, now you don't need to worry, should we just go ahead and live life however we want to? Sounds like a reasonable argument, doesn't it? If we have been forgiven... Why is it important that we change the way we live? So Paul poses the question in that way, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then Paul's going to share an illustration. And the illustration that he shares is is baptism. I want to talk about baptism just briefly because I think the, the picture of baptism throughout the Scripture gives us a very good idea of what Paul is getting at here. In the Old Testament, if you were a non-Jew, you could become a Jew by submitting to a Jewish baptism. Uh, By doing so, then, you submitted yourself to the law and to the prophets and and to the sacrificial system. And the the Gentile convert would come, he would uh, strip down, he would put on a, a... different kind of garment inside the temple or the tabernacle there. And then he would walk down in the in the permanent city of Jerusalem. There was a staircase that took him down to a pool where he would walk himself down there by himself. He would dip himself into the water under the guise of a, of a priest at the top. 
And as he came back up, his expectation was that he would follow the Jewish law. He would submit himself to the sacrificial systems, to the dietary laws and all that. And it showed an exchange, an identification with the Jewish customs, the Jewish law. He said, I'm going to exchange my pagan lifestyle for this Jewish lifestyle. Uh, you come to the New Testament, you got John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer came preaching a baptism of repentance to who? Was he preaching to Gentiles? He wasn't, was he? He was preaching to Jews. And he came and said, look, you've got it all wrong. You have been going down a path that is in essence a pathway to destruction. You need to turn from that and prepare your hearts for the one that is going to come. As a matter of fact, when, when Jesus talks about John... He quotes from Isaiah, which is a prophecy about John coming, and he says, this is the one who's going to prepare the way. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance to Jewish people, but what was interesting, the people that submitted to it was an identification with the ministry of John. It was So here they had the priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees on one side, and the Sanhedrin, and they had John wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. And they said, I'm with John. Uh, not to, uh, at, at the risk of, well, no, I'm not even going to go. I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like somebody who just says, well, I'm going to vote for this person. I, I'm not going to go there. So, uh, I'm smart enough for that. So, so, these people are choosing the ministry of John the baptizer over what they have known. It's an identification with that. And then obviously you come to Christian baptism, which Christian baptism is an identification with who? It's an identification with Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And we miss this all the time. It's not just Jesus, is it? It's the apostles' teaching too. It's Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1 John, 2 John. It is a submission to the truth that is revealed to us, not only in the ministry of Jesus, but his representatives, his apostles, their teaching. And it is a way of saying, I'm going to change my life, substitute my life for the life that is offered to me through Jesus. And so here Paul says, verse 3, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. Don't you understand that that's what your baptism means? That's what your baptism signifies. It is you in faith saying, I trust in Jesus. I believe that Jesus' death is effective for me. And so God says, fine, I'm going to consider you as hanging on the cross right there with Jesus. So, as we sit here today, as believers in Christ, how does God look at us? Dead. Dead. As having paid the ultimate price, not of ourselves, mind you, but it is as our faith is in Jesus Christ, He views us as having paid the penalty of sin through Jesus, vicariously through Jesus. Uh, that's why Jesus had to die the, what is often called the substitutionary death. The death of atonement. Paul's already used that phrase in the book of Romans. That's why Jesus had to die this death of atonement. So that he could be our substitute. He could be the one that we could look to to find hope and healing. And in that, then, is the first part of the double cure. 
That's how sin's penalty is paid, right? Anybody ever heard of a man named Dr. E.V. Hill? Okay, good, a few. So Dr. E.V. Hill is a minister in Los Angeles, uh, was. When I was at Moody, I had the opportunity to hear him preach multiple times. He would come to uh, Founders Week uh, every year. Dr. E.V. Hill is infamous for a, a sermon that he gave entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And uh, he gave the sermon in such a way that only a black minister from South uh, Los Angeles could give. Uh, he also is famous for, and I think I can get away saying this because I'm quoting, a, a sermon that he gave at Moody. I heard it, I, I was in a musical group, so we sat behind the uh, speakers that were speaking. And I remember when he said it, we all looked around and said, can he really say that? I mean, we are in Chicago. He was talking about Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and a bad Negro. And I'm telling you, you could have heard a pin drop. And he said, folks, it's okay. I'm black. I know you're all white. It's okay. You can laugh at that. Uh, so anyways, uh, Dr. E.B. Hill gave this sermon, and it became famous because it is really about the idea that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6, that we consider ourselves dead. God views us as being dead, laying in the grave. Sin's penalty has been paid for, but we're waiting for life to come back. And so the idea is, as we are waiting, it's Friday, and we experience the hopelessness of death, we experience the separation of death, we experience all of those things, and for us, it means a struggle with sin, as Paul is going to talk about. But the hope is, Sunday's coming. There is a resurrection that will change the dynamic of our life, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Let's go on. Don't you know, verse 3, Romans 6, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So here's Paul's argument. He starts off by saying, should we continue in a reckless life that rejects God? Should we continue to sin because grace exists? And Paul says, no. We died to sin, why? To be raised a new life. We died to sin for the hope that there would be something different. But we died to sin so that we could reach the abundant life, right? We died to sin. We exchanged that sinful life so that there might be something better. Verse 5, if we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. Notice the confidence that Paul speaks with and writes with. How many Christians do you know that carry that kind of confidence towards their sinful behavior? Oh, I'm struggling with this. I, I just can't seem to... We believe that we will be resurrected as Jesus was. Verse uh, 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now notice Paul is making the transition from the penalty of sin, the idea that we are under the curse, under the penalty, now to the power of sin in our lives. The fact that sin has the ability to control us, but we also have the ability to be free from it. Because, in verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. 
Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So how do we do this, Paul? How do we, rec- how do we understand this death in our lives? Verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word count there is the word that in the uh, uh, King James Version, New King James Version is often translated reckon. Reckon yourselves as being dead to sin. Count yourselves as dead to sin. What is Paul talking about there? This is the essence of the Christian life. It is the essence of the gospel. I'm going to go back to What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about faith. We are submitting ourselves to the truth and living our lives as though it is true. I have died when, when I chose to be a follower of Jesus. I submitted myself to Him and God counted me as dead. God counted me as one who hung on the cross. And so, in this case, the truth is my life was exchanged for the life that Jesus lived. It was a, uh, a, a, a substitutionary sacrifice that was made. And so I place my life in His. And so now Paul is saying the key is believe it. Submit to it. And live your life as though that is true. Count yourselves dead to sin. Okay, so I'm, and we're going to get into this next week as we talk about uh, in chapter 7 when, when Paul is, is dealing with this issue when, when sin is alive in us. But when, when we are dealing with a particular, what I'm going to call a symptom of sin, okay? We want to lie. We want to cheat. We want to, uh, I don't know, murder, <laughs> uh, whatever. But there, there's something that we want to do. We must acknowledge that the real problem is what? What do I really want? I want my own way. I want to be God. I don't want to let Him be God. I want to be God. I want to make the decisions. I want to choose. And so Paul's saying, consider yourself dead. What choice does a dead man have? (laughs) To be wormed. And that is exactly... Paul's point. Now, if we die, excuse me, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Notice here what Paul is saying. It is the conscious effort of recognizing that I have died to sin, and now saying, God, use me for something good. I want to choose something self-serving. Use me for something that is of your design. Um... So, I would encourage you to underline 
verse 11 and verse 12 in your Bibles. Star it, circle it, do whatever. Because in reality, that is the pivot point of Romans, the book of Romans, and it leads us into the rest of the book of Romans, which really helps us with the practical application of everything that happens. The bottom line is mental reckoning will begin to influence our behavior. Jesus said it this way, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If you believe yourself to be dead to sin and waiting for the Spirit of Christ to resurrect you for moments of righteousness, you will begin to show that in your life. If you offer yourself continually uh, to the fulfillment of your own selfish desires, your own selfish wants and wishes, you will continue in those patterns. It's that simple. Um, It's kind of like if you were to say, a person who struggles maybe with an addiction, an addiction. Let's say, person has a. Uh, I'm going I'm to give you two examples so that it doesn't look like I'm pointing out uh, or picking on something. Let, let's say a person has a, an addiction to alcohol, and they constantly go to the bar and the parties. Is their life going to change very fast? No, it's not. Is it? Now, for the re- for maybe that's not our addiction. How about people that are addicted to work? That's me. I struggle with that. It's hard for me to remember that I wasn't put on this life to just work all the time because I received so much um, satisfaction from it. And so if I don't take time away from work, what's going to happen? Well, we look at it and we say, well, it's not really, you know, you're being productive. Yeah, but it's all about me. It's all about how I feel. It's all about... You know, my wife saying, oh, thank you for doing this. My boss saying, good job. That is no different than this over here, right? Why don't we see it that way? When it is about me, it is sin. So I want to challenge you on three different areas of sinfulness that I think have crept their way into the church. um, And we have begun to See them as okay. Uh, And all of this is going to be uh, essentially uh, borne out, if you will, in verses 15 through chapter 7, verse 6. So what I want to do is read that passage, and then I'm going to come back and talk about these three categories of sin. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. If you recall, when Mark was preaching on this, he talked about indentured servitude um, and how uh, that was a way of life in the first century. Uh, There weren't companies and businesses that we could go to work for, and so you had to go to work for wealthy people. And you would indenture yourself to them. You would serve, say, hey, I will serve you for something in exchange. It's really employment. It's no different uh, what we do. I work for a company. I say, hey, you pay me this and I will do this job and we'll be fine. Indentured servitude. Okay. Uh, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin disobedience, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. 
If you notice there, there's the definition of faith. It's veiled a little bit. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. The word entrusted is the exact same root word as faith. They submitted to the truth and it led to an obedience in their lives. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body and in, in, uh, in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness. Choose to offer yourself an indentured servitude to a, a righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you were now ashamed of? Those things that result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another, while her husband is alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and, there, and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to whom, who, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in this section, Paul basically says, he, he's arguing uh, that we have died. We need to consider ourselves as, as slaves to righteousness, as, as waiting for a resurrection to happen to where we can live a new life. And, uh, and I, don't want you, I don't want you to miss here what I'm saying. It's not that we spend our time as Christians just saying, well, I'm just waiting. You know, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is look for the opportunities for righteousness, but understand where is the ability to carry out that righteousness going to come from? It's not going to come from us. He's going to tell us this in chapter 8. It's going to come from the Spirit of God who will resurrect us to do that. There's a song Jeremy Camp sings. I love it. It's called Same Power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us today. That's a truth. That we need to that needs to become an anchor for our soul that we submit to. When we are struggling with sin, we have to understand that the resurrecting power that raised Jesus from the dead, never been done before. Somebody who was resurrected from dead to new life, never to die again, that's never happened. That is available to you and I every day of our lives. So that that is in essence what, what Paul is sharing here. But then he says, you need to understand that. Sin can also be good things. And that's where it gets into this discussion about the law. So, three things that I think we need to look at um, 
For the believer, continual sin should not be an option. Sin here should be viewed as usurping the authority of God and choosing our own way, not his re- not the resulting in behavior that is contrary to God's righteousness. In, in this section, and, and I think Michael DeFazio pointed this out, uh, sin is not those symptoms that so often we, we, we think, oh, those things are horrible, lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, all Here, he's talking about good things, submitting to the law. So, number one, religious goodness. Or a works-oriented salvation that says, okay, God saved me, but now i got to keep myself saved. i got to be good. I'm going to be at church 15 minutes before the building opens. I'm going to help in the parking lot. Uh, I'm going to serve. I'm going to kill myself making sure that people understand, I understand how good the grace of God is. Should we serve Christ and find ways to do that? Absolutely. But understand your salvation does not depend on it. If you want to follow the law, give up bacon. Right? You know, people say, well, I'm just trying to follow the law. Well, no, you're trying to follow Ten Commandments. What about the other 603? What about the sacrificial system? When's the last time you killed a bull? Or you brought a dove as a guilt offering? The law has been canceled because, Paul's going to tell us this, it is weakened by our sinful nature. It could never be fulfilled to produce righteousness. Religious goodness is one way that we continue to sin. Okay? Number two, self-seeking behavior. Self-seeking behavior. My hopes, my dreams, and choices regarding my own life. How often do we sit and decide what we're going to do, how we're going to do it based on what we want? If in baptism we exchanged our life, then shouldn't it be the place of God to tell us what our life is going to be like? Paul says, don't you understand that when you become a slave to somebody, you are a a slave to that person who is your master. In this case, it's Jesus. And so, self-seeking behavior. The reason that I point this out, you know, I I talked about how significance is such a a huge issue for me. And it has taken me, I don't know, 40-some years of my life to realize this and to see how it undermines Christianity. It undermines my following of Jesus. Because I, I do these things that, uh, you know, I work hard, and I'm a good employee. My boss recognizes that. That strokes Mike's ego. Mike feels good about that. And we say, well, how can that be wrong? Well... I should do that because I'm getting paid. Not because it makes me feel good. I should do that to bring honor to whom? To Christ. He should be the reason. The reason that I'm a good employee isn't because of me. It's because He is in me. Making me into a good employee. So self-seeking behavior. And then the third one, self-serving behavior. Things that serve our own wants, wishes, and needs. Materialism. I think if Jesus were to walk into American churches today, uh, 
there would be he would he would talk to us more the way he did to the Pharisees than he did to many other people. We accumulate things for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have a job that allows you to, to uh, amass wealth and all that, good for you. My question to you is, how are you serving God and the rest of humanity with what He has given you? You see, there, there are, uh, I, I mentioned to you a song by Rich Mullins here uh, several weeks ago. One of the reasons that I appreciate Rich Mullins he, went, he had a board of directors that oversaw all of his recording uh, empire, if you will. And he went to them and said, here's how we're going to do this. You're going to pay me the annual salary of the average American across the country. At that time, it happened to be $42,000. He was worth millions. He made $42,000 a year. The rest of it, he gave away. Why? Because he was motivated and he understood that he had died even to his own ability to earn money. That now belonged to God. How about selfishness? Uh, I'm going to be very careful here. But sometimes the most selfish place that I attend or go to on throughout a given week is right here. People fighting to get in line at the cafe. People fighting to go talk to somebody to a restroom. Honestly. When, when I walk down the hall, sometimes I think, God, do you look down on us? I mean, the same things that I struggle with. When I'm driving down the highway, and the person in front of me is going slow, and the guy behind me is running up behind me. All of those things I struggle with. But then when I come and I see it from brothers and sisters in Christ on a Sunday, and I think, God, does this break your heart? When we think that we're more important than the person who's trying to you know, to get in the door or to get coffee. Will we not take the example of Jesus Christ and bend down and pick up the towel and serve our brother? And finally, the third thing is judgmentalism. The, the third self-serving behavior is judgmentalism. When we look at people around us and we say, well, obviously that person is not going to heaven. I mean, look at it. All of these things... I think, are ways in which we sin in the church today, but we don't call it sin. So what is the central truth of the, this section of Romans? Number one, we should count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. When confronted with the opportunity to choose God's way or our own, we have a choice. We must recognize the truth of our position that we are now righteous and look for ways out and trust God to produce that within us. We have to say, I know I really want to jump in front of Eddie and go get that coffee. Or uh, soda, whatever Eddie's drinking. But I am dead to sin. Eddie is a child of God and so I am going to defer to him. Uh, you know... This is kind of off the subject, but we read about communion in 1 Corinthians and how the Corinthian church had messed up communion. And we think, okay, that's good. We'll apply that to communion. It also applies to the cafe. It applies to the bathroom, the doors, right? Seats. <laughs> I mean, that, that one always, you know, I, I always, you're always careful. Oh, 
especially because we generally go to the third service every once in a while. We'll go to the second service and hope we're not in anybody's seats. Anybody else feel that way? <laughs> okay, so that's number one. We should count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. Number two, we must rely on the resurrecting power of God's Spirit. We must be convinced that just as Jesus was raised to life, so we too can be raised to life. Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, sin is present in our lives. Yes, we're going to battle it. But it doesn't have to win. And that is the pivoting point, if you will, that Paul is moving towards. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.com. Dot com.